I'm happy to be here. And uh, I was asked to talk about, what do you say, women protesting against war, writing and acting for peace, uh, which is a topic I worked with uh, quite a bit uh, when I was at the International Peace Research uh, of Oslo uh, as a researcher there. Uh, and uh, I was asked to come there because I had done some studies on children's stereotypes towards other nations, depending on where in Norway they lived. Um, because um, uh, during this, um, the big campaign against uh, Norway's entry into the common market of the European Union, um, there was an argument, and I was the leader of the movement against Norway's entry into the European Union in the north of Norway. And there was an argument that uh, uh, did not go home well uh, up there, and that was the argument that uh, we had to get, become members of the European Union because of the threat from the Soviet Union. Uh, and um, therefore, I found it would be interesting to look at the children's stereotypes towards um, the Soviet Union in Kirkenes, uh, which is a, a town on the border between Russia and Norway, and in the Oslo area and uh, uh, compare those. And also, uh, I found a place which is demographically the same, but in the west part of, of Norway. And um, what I found was that uh, uh, the children uh, had a very positive attitude towards uh, Soviet Russians. Uh, it was Soviet Union at that time uh, in the north, while they had a negative one in the south. And uh, I tried to find out how come, or why is this so, and I found that it had to do with the fact that up in, the, uh, in the Russia, uh, children had actually met Soviet Russians. Sixty percent of those who, were, who answered had met, the, met them, and they would say things like, they are very nice people, they, uh, they laugh a lot, they smile, they, like to, they come with babushka dolls for us, and uh, they come with vodka to our father. And, uh, uh, they, so, they were, so they were saying very nice things out of just their knowledge of them. And their, uh, but in the Oslo area, there was not one single child in the whole sample of 250 children who had ever met one. Uh, so, so their stereotypes came from what they've heard from parents, neighborhood, and from television, and, and so on. So that sort of started out my begin quest in the peace uh, issues. Uh, and uh, then at the same time, I was working uh, at the University of Oslo with the gender studies, with the women's studies, women education, and uh, also with the ma male role. I have written a couple of books on, on the socialization of men, of male, male role socialization. Those I have written in, in Norwegian, so they were, uh, well, I don't think, I don't know if there is anyone of you who reads Norwegian, but Maljilda. <laughs> but um, uh, so, so that was the reason why I was asked to come to the Peace Research Institute. I was at that time, had a tenure job at the University of Oslo. And the first thing uh, they asked me to do was to write an assignment for a UNESCO conference in New Delhi. And the assignment, it was a, U, uh, a UNESCO conference, and the assignment was, um, uh, the title was, The Role of Women as Mothers and Members of Society in the Education of the Young for Peace, Mutual Understanding, and Respect for Human Rights. It's a typical UN title. Uh, where they have got everything in. Uh, 
and, and where human rights was something that the U.S. wanted in and the peace was something that the Soviet Union wanted in. And so we know how these texts are constructed. But that was the jo job that I got to, to, uh, to write this for the conference in Delhi. And that was actually the first time I started to combine these two studies, women's studies and peace studies. I'd never done that before. I'd worked with them as separate fields, totally separate fields. Uh, and uh, also when I did that study of the, uh, in, of the children's stereotypes in the north, I didn't even look at the gender there. Uh, where, uh, so now suddenly I thought, well, role of women as mothers and education of the young, the young are both boys and girls, and we are certainly socialized in very different ways when it comes to, to looking at, uh, at um, uh, peace uh, the way with, boy, with toys, it starts from there, starts from where you, you're born. And I had this, uh, students that I, I had a course in peace education, and I asked them to go into a, a toy shop and, um, and ask um, and just say, I want to have a toy, um, buy a toy for a three-year-old child. And, of course, the first question you get is, boy or a girl? Uh, and, uh, uh, and then if it's a boy, you're uh, shown uh, actually war toys. You're shown uh, small uh, pistols, re revolvers, and also... Uh, but if you say a girl, you don't, are not shown any of those. It's a dolls, and, and uh, so it starts from there. And uh, then uh, if you have a, an army like we have, it's uh, boys know from their very young that they have to, uh, they have to either go into the army or they have to be conscientious objectors. And for some, that's not a choice at all. Others are so they're pre-socialized into going into the army. So there are, uh, when it comes to peace, there are certain really big issues and very, and very great differences in the way we are socialized. And uh, which uh, I'll come to a, a slide uh, later, which I think um, will, uh, we can explain the results of that, uh, of the, the opinion poll I'll show you, by this socialization we have. And also the role of women as mothers, I um, mean, what they, they had thought was, of course, that the women are making peace in the family and, and uh, things like that. But are they actually, are we doing that? And how are women treated in the family? And you cannot talk about this without talking about uh, also the battering of women, uh, violence against women. women. So I started combining these uh, two fields. Uh, and um, uh, so this is what I want, to, I want to go through. Yeah, that's fine. I think you can <laughs> see both me and, and the slide better. Uh, can you see also? Over there. It's fine. Yeah, so, so um, I want to go through the analysis of the peace concept and how it relates to the life of women. Because that is what uh, I started out then looking at the peace concept and seeing that it is gendered somehow. And that had not been done before. Um, I was an um, active member, still am, of, um, and uh, Chad Alger is is one of the big, big men in that organization of IPRA, the International Peace Research Association, where also Jill has been very active. Uh, and in, in IPRA, International Peace Research Association, um, there was at, that, at the time when I, I entered there in Canada in 1981, 
um, there was no commission on on uh, on g gender or on on women's issue. There was a, a, a commission on on peace uh, movements. There was another commission on violence. There were many different commissions, but there was no one that r took up the gender co concept. And the first time I went to a peace education commission, it was not talked about there either. Um, and I, there was a feminist like Betty Reardon there. And I, uh, she didn't say anything uh, about this, and I thought it was strange. So afterwards, I talked to her and said that uh, it's my first time here, but I'm a bit surprised that no one has, uh, is talking about this. And this was a time when I had started becoming conscious. I just started working at the Peace Research Institute. And she said, well, we really need to do something about this. We'll make a commission. So we made a, a Women and Peace Commission uh, at, uh, at the, that meeting in 1981, and I became the first chair, chair of it. Um, and we, we found that uh, uh, we need to look at women in all, uh, co uh, when it comes to peace movements, how are women in, in peace movements. We need to, to look at the silencing of women, the situation of women in war. And uh, what characterizes peace movements started and led by women. Uh, so I'll give some examples of women working and writing for peace and what characterizes their work also. Uh, when I, start, when I, I started working on this uh, assignment, uh, Betty Reardon started at the same time, and we came out with our books the same year, 1985, uh, mine uh, Educating for Peace, the Feminist Perspective, and hers, Sexism and the War System. Uh, and in 1989, we also came out with books. Uh, so, and the commission has grown, and we have become uh, many, and we have had the difficulty of not being ghettoized, uh, so we've been trying to now go in with our perspectives in the various commissions, because what happened was that uh, also some of the men who saw that the gender is so important when it comes to peace issues, they would come to our commission, and then you wouldn't get that perspective into the other commissions. They would be, and we found that that is not a good tactic. So we started meeting before uh, the real IPRA conference started so that we could then go through our papers and then go two or three into various commissions, which I think is better. Then this is then uh, the grid that I made uh, and which uh, you can find in my next book, uh, which came in 1989 called Feminist Perspectives on Peace and Peace Education. It's page 47. That grid has been republished, republished, and republished in one book after the other. Uh, and uh, I constantly get check, checks from the U.S. Uh, because they have, um, I have the right to this grid. And so they send me checks and $10 or $15, and it costs $20 to cash a check. Uh, so, <laughs> so I have all these checks lying around uh, I can't use. But uh, anyway, this is, uh, uh, I have built on concepts from Johan Galtung, where he talks about uh, structural, he talks about peace being not only the absence of war, but the absence of also of structural violence. And, um, uh, you know, this, uh, uh, well, you see it here. Absence, uh, when we first started uh, defining the peace concept, we started by saying that peace is the absence of war. Then you got new people into the peace research movement, especially people from developing countries, saying, well, if there is no war, our children are still killed through other means. They are starved to death. 
they don't get enough uh, to eat. Uh, the life expectancy uh, in, in uh, uh, many developing countries is about 40 years or so 43 years, and, and we have up to 80. This is uh, what Johan Galtung then calls structural violence. Uh, and um, it's that economic structures that are built up uh, within a country or between countries so that life chances of some are reduced. But it's also the effect of damage on nature by pollution, radiation, and so on. And um, so that I'm now talking about what is the down there and the organized violence. Uh, so the absence of economic structures, the economic structures built up within a country uh, or between countries. When you talk about between countries, you're talking about the relationship between the so-called industrial world and, and the developing world. Uh, and it's uh, the theory um, that uh, uh, a conflict theory that we, we that I also adhere to, it's, it, uh, and uh, which shows that we are actually exploiting the, the developing countries by the way we are organizing ourselves, by organizing the economic uh, system in, in the north. Uh, but we're not doing it only uh, between our country our countries here in North and the developing countries, we're also doing it within the country, within, within the country. And I shall show you um, a slide uh, afterwards showing what is happening in this country, in the U.S., where uh, the model really comes from, the whole globalization. Uh, globalization to me means re really capitalism uh, or market-led, market-led, market-driven capitalism. And that model is creating more and more inequality. Uh, and that means that uh, there are, uh, th this is an economic system uh, that makes it for people getting poorer and poorer, the poorest getting poorer and poorer, and some uh, getting ridiculously rich. Um, then you have also now we have, uh, now there's a lot of, about talk about the environment and um, uh, the effects on damage uh, and uh, of, of, of the damage on nature, which is man-made, it's made by, by us. Uh, uh, on the pollution, uh, also nuclear weapon fallout. You might know about, there's a fantastic book by a um, Catholic nun from Canada, Rosalie Bertel, No Immediate Danger, with a question mark, uh, where she has gone through, uh, looked at two types of data, uh, she's gone to the Pacific Islands uh, and looked at the fallout from um, nuclear testing and compared those to um, the, the, uh, babies, ba baby stillbirths of babies and babies born with defects of some kind and found this a really big correlation. And there has been threat of her life a couple of times. Uh, because uh, she is, has been publishing this. There's this enormous book on no immediate danger, because they would always say no immediate danger, but she has shown that actually there is great danger by this pollution. Uh, so um, I have divided this uh, uh, indirect violence uh, into two. Johan Galtung has it in one, but I divided it into two because I think that the absence of repression in a country of free speech and the right to organize, these are the human rights that the United States think are the most important human rights. You know that the human rights, they both, you have the covenant on, on the civil and political rights, 
Uh, and though when the United States talk about human rights, they very often talk about that covenant. They do not talk as much about the covenant on economic rights and um, economic and social rights. And that is the covenant that developing countries are more concerned about because that means getting food to people so that they don't uh, die of, of starvation. And that is uh, this column here deals with that. But the uh, other col column of repression of, um, in the country of free speech, that has more to do with, with um, uh, the uh, human rights in the uh, civil political rights, that you, uh, where the multi-party system is uh, supposed to be, uh, be a better system. I'm not quite sure about that, uh, whether that's so, that uh, democracy is sort of, of defined as, as a, through multi-party. But sometimes the parties are very similar, so it doesn't really matter that much. And uh, you can also have one-party one system where it uh, can be a lot of debate. Uh, what we have done, the, uh, the feminist peace researchers, is to look at also the micro level, the unorganized type of violence. And uh, we have been trying to look at uh, uh, these cells at the top here and see that there is uh, there's sometimes correlation. They, are, uh, they, they can be um, um, by themselves, these six uh, cells, but there are also correlations between them. When you look at um, the wife batterings, rapes, child abuse, dowry, deaths, street killings, um, most of these, uh, well, the wife batterings, of course, is uh, women are battered. Uh, the rapes are normally women being raped. But child abuse is done both by women and men. The mothers also abuse children. And the dowry deaths of India that I got to learn about mostly when I was in India, uh, that is actually done very much by mothers-in-law. They are uh, collaborating with, uh, with the rest of the family uh, and treating their own daughters-in-law the way they sometimes were treated themselves. Uh, and I didn't know before I came to India that the, the dowry system is so strong there. I thought it was something more of the past, but it's absolutely not. Uh, with the whole consumerism coming up uh, more and more, it has been now coming not only in the uh, higher uh, socio-economic groups, but as far down as possible. They have to pay the parents of the bride they have to pay to the, uh, to the parents of the bridegroom uh, money or, uh, or gadgets. And uh, if they don't pay, or if they sometimes what they do is that they promise that, you will, they, that they, these in-laws will get something in the next year, and then they don't have the money to come with that. And then they start burning this uh, young bride, uh, putting kerosene over her sari, and uh, she starts burning in the feet, and, and uh, so she goes home and shows this so that her parents should pay. And if they don't pay, then she's burnt, killed to death. And there have been many, many cases. And uh, when I was last time in Delhi, there was a big march of feminists in through the streets, uh, marching against uh, such a dowry uh, death that had happened. Uh, so that, that is uh, done also by, by women. Uh, of course, we could also have clitoridectomy as part of this uh, cell here. It's done on, on girls, and it's very cruel, uh, and that's also done by women. 
Um, street killings, mostly uh, done by men, and mo mostly men are also killed. And most, uh, when you look, look at the absence of indirect violence shortening lifespan in the, this uh, unorganized in the top here, that, that's uh, inequalities in microstructures leading to in unequal life chances. And um, uh, that means that even in a microstructure, in a family unit, uh, women and, uh, and girls very often get less to eat than, uh, than men do. Uh, and there is a study that I mention in, uh, at least in that book, Feminist Perspectives, uh, of, from the UN uh, High Commissioner of Refugees. Uh, came to, into a refugee camp with enough food for everyone there to get satisfied, for everyone to, uh, to eat uh, enough calories for everyone, and uh, distributed this, just handed it out, and they came back a, a month later and saw that some of the men had really grown, grown big and fat, and some of the girls were starving. Uh, and, that, and then they, they concluded that it was not enough to come with the food to the refugee camp. They actually had to go into the microstructures, into the families, and see to it that uh, it was divided evenly. And you have also to do with the custom you have in some places. I, I have noticed it when I was in Pakistan, when it was there, uh, where men eat first, and then women get sort of what is left over. So, um, and here the men were afraid that they might not get food uh, next week, so they were eating. Uh, so this is something that is, um, you have to, to um, uh, be aware of, that even in the microstructures, uh, there can be unequal life chances. Um, and um, then absence of repression in microstructure leading to less freedom of choice and fulfillment. Um, I'll have an example there from um, um, when you had the Soviet Union, uh, where the, at the time with, of the Soviet Union, it was a absolutely repression of, of free speech. And you had a, a movement called the Samizdat, uh, that was an underground movement of people writing against the government, and um, uh, uh, radical people. Uh, some of them had to flee the country, um, because they were, they were distributing these uh, newspapers illegally, and um, the mostly men working there. But some of those who had to flee and are be part of this were some women, Russian women. And they have, uh, they afterwards told that they had tried to come out with one uh, issue of that samizdat about the way that women were treated in the Soviet Union at the time, because the women did not get um, their full rights. They had First of all, they had uh, difficulties uh, getting contraceptives, and uh, so uh, they, uh, a free abortion was there, so they were aborting and aborting over, uh, over and over again because they couldn't get contraceptives, but they had abortion instead, and that, of course, is, is uh, tough, very tough. Uh, and also, the men were not doing much at home, so that the girls, the, all the women were double working because they were all full-time working, career women, but they had to also do the household. And these articles they wanted to have published, and the men in the Samstad had said, no, we are not going to publish that because you are, uh, this, is, um, this is Western feminism. But it, it, it wasn't. These women had never, ever read any Western feminism. So, so it was, uh, didn't have anything to do with Western, Western feminism. But, uh, but um, it was, they wanted to tell about the situation they had. Um, and you have 
uh, we have institutions like you have in Egypt uh, about um, uh, the House of Obedience. I don't know if you know about that institution. Um, I'm teaching each year at the European University of Peace in Stadtschleining in Austria. Uh, and there, uh, there was one of my students from Egypt. She had a video she showed uh, from, from um, uh, the House of Obedience. And it was really a shock to me, uh, and I didn't know much about the institution. But it is an institution whereby if uh, a wife is uh, not obeying the husband, uh, he can get the uh, court to summon her to go into the house of obedience. And that is an apartment or something that he finds that is below the normal standards and where he is the only one who has the key to that apartment. So there he or she can be locked in for months. And I have uh, in one, uh, in one, um, uh, it's one article I recently wrote in this um, Bridges, Reality of War and the Possibility of Peace. I have an article there uh, where I tell, uh, I tell, I refer to a book about this institution of the House of Obedience and, and about a woman who tells that her husband had her, uh, have her stand naked most of the night and, and was beating her all the time in that House of Obedience. And it's a legal institution. It's uh, something that is really, really, really bad. Uh, and it's, um, Absolutely against all, all types of human rights, of course. Um, uh, so these, these uh, six cells constitute, in a way, the peace concept. If you don't have an absence of these, uh, uh, the, uh, of, of these um, uh, in all uh, uh, inequalities and uh, atrocities, in all the six cells you don't have peace. That's what, that's what we are saying. The cells are logically independent, but in reality there are, um, there are, there are um, empirical uh, correlations between them. For instance, Elise Boulding, and she has made a study where she showed that in times of economic repression, uh, women get more beatings. So that, then you can see that there is a, a correlation between the cell up there and the cell down there. Uh, so, um, well, uh, this is uh, a table that I have found from the book from Ravi Batra calling, called um, The Pouring of America, The Myth of Free Trade. And um, he has looked at the system of, of um, market economy, also called globalization, and what it leads to in, in a place, in, in, in the U.S. Uh, and he looks at um, uh, the period from 1977 to 1988, and you can see the change in dollars. We had, he has divided the uh, American population into 10, um, and the 10th decile um, that earns the least. Uh, and you see that the change in dollars for them in that period has been 609, and it's minus 14.8%. Per, uh, that's the poorest 10 uh, decile in, in the United States. They have lost in that period, and that was when the globalization really started. Uh, they've lost 14%. And then, you, if you go down the table, you go to the ninth percentage, you go to the eighth, seventh, sixth, fifth, fourth, third, you see minus all the way. 
which means that 80% of the American people have become poorer in this decade. Uh, so you, it's only when you come to the, the last 20% that there is a small increase. Uh, for the second, there's a small increase. For the first, the 10% of the top, they have an increase of 16.5%. Uh, and if you then look at the top 5%, you have 23.4% uh, increase. And the top 1%, 49.8% increase. So that is a dramatic difference. Uh, and this is the type of, of uh, society we, we are creating. Um, UN uh, report in um, 2004, I think it was, had um, uh, the title, uh, uh, the, the inequality predicament. The inequality predicament. Because that is actually what can characterize our society at the moment. It's, um, it's the UNDP uh, Human Development Report. No, the, the, no it's the United Nations uh, Research Center, United Nations, uh, 2005, the inequality predicament. And uh, they are saying that that is the biggest threat, threat, threat to our society at the moment, uh, that uh, the inequalities are, are just becoming bigger and bigger. Um, here I have an opinion poll. Uh, conducted by the, the company Omnijet for the Norwegian newspaper, uh, it's the biggest Norwegian newspaper, uh, on the 18th of March 2003, on Norwegian attitudes on the war on Iraq. And you see uh, support to the war in Iraq of Norwegian men, there were 50% who supported, women only 21%. That is a great difference, it's a very great difference. And um, it's a difficult to explain in a way, apart from, if you go back to my first, uh, what I first started talking about, the socialization we get as men and women, as boys and girls, that is so different. Um, right now in Norway, we have a big discussion about uh, uh, conscribing women, uh, having women do military service. Um, and uh, that, uh, that should be compulsory. It's even our government at the moment. We have a government which is a left government with uh, Social Democrats, the Green Party, and, and the Socialist Left Party. It's actually the, uh, the best government we could have. Uh, but still, uh, they have, uh, have suggested that now we should start conscribing women, all women, uh, will have to go into the military. And I was just in, um, well, a couple of, about three, four weeks ago, I was in a debate in the Norwegian broadcasting uh, with the Secretary of State and the uh, Minister of Defense. Actually, he is um, Espen Bart Eide. Chad, you might know his father, Aspjorn um, Eide. He was a peace researcher. But his son is then, uh, he's from a social democrat. Uh, and he is now uh, suggesting this together with the Minister of Defense so, uh, that uh, girls or uh, women should go into the military. So we had a big debate about this, uh, where he is saying that uh, um, women will 
make the military be a better place. It will, women will, will uh, with uh, their values and so on, make it possible for, um, it will be more legitimate uh, um, uh, institution, the whole military, uh, if women go in there and uh, they are, they will be better peace negotiators. Uh, than, than men are. They will be better in, in uh, conflicts. Uh, and um, uh, I'm saying that that uh, institution, uh, it's like running your head against the wall. It's not, uh, it's not the wall that will give, uh, that will um, fall together. It's, it's your own head. I mean, in that institution, you're not able to, to change it. Uh, by having some more women going. Uh, you're just socializing women, and if you are into the military, so you will get a more militarized society. That is, uh, that is what is happening. So um, a more, um, I don't think we would get this result here in an opinion poll if uh, uh, girls also were conscribed into in the army. If you were all, all Norwegian girls, it was Norwegian women were in the army, you would not get this result. And I see a potential in women uh, that, that they, they are able to, uh, to come up with other ideas through the fact that we're not part of it, the military. Uh, well, that was a, uh, I didn't really want to go go <laughs> to my thank you right away. I want to say something. Um, I should maybe go back and see, uh, see if I can and go back to this uh, and go up to a slide here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this, uh, the situation of women in war, I've talked uh, a bit about that. And um, in, in the, war con the war institution itself, I, I talked about the military, when we've been conscribed into it. There is an interesting book by, by Cynthia Enlow called does khaki become you? Uh, where she uh, tells about what women have done in wars and what we, what uh, what is the role of women in war? And you know, women are all, all, all over in war. Women are a part of the war industry. War, women are in munition uh, factories. Women are also servicing men as prostitutes. And the worst uh, example we have of that, of course, is is uh, the. Uh, the so-called comfort women during the Second World War, that the G Japanese had 100,000 women. It was 100,000 women, uh, very many Korean uh, women, uh, who were forced into prostitution for um, uh, the term of the, of the war. And right after the war ended, then uh, the American troops came in and the Japanese helped them to just take over these brothels and service the American soldiers that came in. So they just, just continued. They were cooperating, actually. Uh, and um, there is a, it's a crisis center of, of some women, old women from, from this time, uh, still living uh, and telling about uh, the atrocities, how they were raped every, every day. These comfort women, 100,000. So it's the only time we have, one has seen that masses. Well, you, we know that rapes are part of war all the time. But um, uh, the, the, this example of the 100,000 comfort women is uh, rather in, in unique. Uh, the silencing of women, uh, that if, if women um, are really working uh, against the war institution, they very often do not get the attention that men, men do. 
And uh, I have a good example of that where I have written uh, of some at some length in that first book, The Feminist Perspectives, no, the Educating for Peace, about Bertha von Suttner and Alfred Nobel. Uh, I don't know how many of you know about him. Jill knows because you heard me talk about Bertha, Bertha von Suttner. How, how many of you have heard about Bertha, Bertha von Suttner? Austrian peace hero, that's one. Austrian peace hero, Bertha von Suttner. She was the one who started organizing big peace marches, big peace conferences at the end of uh, around 1900 and trying to avoid the First World War. She was working very, very hard on this. Uh, She was... um, um, there's a long love story between her and, and Arthur von Suttner that she, uh, they eloped and married at one, uh, and eloped to, to Russia where she started. They're both pacifists and she wrote this fantastic novel called Lay Down Your Arms, Die Waffen Nieder in, in German. Uh, she was wrote in German. It has been translated, I think, into 30 languages. And Leo uh, Tolstoy wrote to her that... Uh, uh, Harry Beecher Stowe's book, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, made an end to, uh, to slavery in the U.S. And I think that your book, Die Waffen Nieder, Down with Arms, will make an end to all war. Um, but unfortunately, that did not happen. Um, when she was, before she married Arthur von Suttner, she was for a short period the secretary of Alfred Nobel. Uh, in, uh, uh, and um, they become acquainted and friends for, for the rest of their life and they had was a fantastic correspondence between these two they were writing to each other and uh, he you know uh, went in dynamite and had this uh, making arms and so on they were, uh, they were discussing about the arms race and he was saying that I'm doing more with my armaments than you are doing with all your peace talks because that day when two, uh, when that day comes that two armies can annihilate each other within seconds, that day uh, all armies will be dismissed. Um, and uh, you know that day has come, but armies are still there. So he was not right. He, uh, but he was saying that the way to get disarmament is through rearming, while she was saying the way to get disarmament is through disarmament, disarming do away with all the weapons. That's what she said. And she was able to convince him that he should take some of the money that he was earning on all his armaments to give to a peace prize. That's how we got the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, and many people don't know about this. And in the, in the Nobel uh, Institute, the Nobel uh, in, in, uh, in, in Oslo, there is a statue of Nobel, of course, and it's a statue of Fritjof Nansen, um, the polar explorer who was also working for peace, but many of the things he said he had actually got from Bertha von Suttner. She had written to him every time she knew that he was going to give a talk about his polar explore, ex, explorations, she would uh, write to him and ask him, please say these sentences about world peace also. And, and he, so he was very much influenced by her also, and without her there would be no Nobel Prize, but she is not there. She is, there's no statue of her there at all. And when I talk to, to people, um, women mostly, of my mother's age, my mother is still living, and uh, she, she was very active in the Quaker 
among the Quakers in, in Norway, and uh, um, and, the, and she had me sometimes talk to to peace friends there. They all knew who Bertha von Kusutner was. If I talk to people of my daughter's age, they don't know her. She has been silenced. Uh, they tried to silence her when she lived. That was not easy. Uh, that was not possible because of this book. But in now, in history, or her story, uh, it's not her story. It's actually his story. And she is, has been silenced. Um, some few years ago, I was asked by a Swedish research institute to write a content analysis of books that are used in the Swedish school system in peace education. And these are books used from the kindergarten and all through high school. Uh, and uh, they're teacher guides and, uh, they're, uh, uh, and uh, they're recommendations for teachers of, of books they should have in the library and so on. And I started out by looking at sort of the peace concept, what type of peace concept are these books uh, built around. This is a content analysis. Uh, uh, and it, the books are paid partly by the Alvan Myrdal Foundation and partly by the Red Cross and UN Association of Sweden. So there should be good organizations making this. And, uh, uh, and the committee, the half women who had been uh, making this text. Still, I found when I went through this that uh, the, the ten books they suggested should be in the library, in any library in, in, in any school in, in Sweden. None of them was written by a woman. They were all written by, by men. And there we have this fantastic book, the, the first book that really wrote about, the first person who wrote about uh, the uh, environmental threat was uh, a Swedish woman, Elin Wegner Weckeklocka, Alarm Clock, came in 48. And after that you had Rachel Carson writing about the same. And then you have uh, Helen Caldecott's books. You have Rosalind Bertel. I mean, we, uh, I, wrote to, uh, I wrote a list of 20 books written by women. Uh, you, have, uh, you have Susan George about the, what the World Bank is doing and what the, the bankers are doing and the structural violence. There are so many books written by women, and there was not one single one mentioned by, uh, in this, uh, by these Swedes. It's not that they, um, that they were consciously doing this. I'm not quite I'm sure about that. It was that they don't think about women when they think about creative people. I have, if I have, do I have time for three minutes, which is sort of a bit off record. Okay, I'll tell you something which just illustrates this point, uh, but it's something else. It's about a board uh, of filmmakers um, in Norway that I was a part of because they had some state representatives and I was active in politics, so I was put in this board. And we were ten people, and I was the only woman. And uh, then we had decided that we would have a brainstorming meeting for a whole day to come up with new ideas for films in, in, uh, in Norway. And we should then invite uh, uh, 10 creative people each, so there should be 100 people, and we should sit around round tables and have a very nice lunch and wine and get talking the whole day to come be creative and come up with these ideas for films. And uh, they should not be filmmakers. It should be creative people who would have ideas. And so next time we met and we should read out our list of, of names. And I, being conscious feminist, I had uh, written a list of five women and five men. 
But then I was number four. There were three men before me uh, coming with their lists. And they mentioned ten men, ten men, ten men. And I didn't say a word, but I changed my list uh, so that I read ten women. And then the men said, well, what are you doing? You're reading, you have only women. And that's the point. They had not noticed what they had done. Because I said, yeah, and what have you been doing? And then, then first, when I came with my example, then first they were thinking of it. They had absolutely not noticed. So when they're thinking of women, they're not thinking of the of creating. When they think of creating people, they're not thinking of women. Uh, thinking of women in other respects, but not, not as these creative. And they, it's not difficult in Norway to get ten uh, creative women at all. Uh, but my, my point with this is that uh, these were, I mean, they were nice men, uh, and it, they had not done it on purpose, absolutely not. But they had not thought uh, about it. They had not, uh, so, and I didn't see it before I came with mine. Well, what characterizes peace movements started and led by women, um, there, you know, the women are the bulk of the peace movements. In, in all peace movements, women are doing a great, great job. And um, I have several examples of, of uh, mothers of soldiers from Russia, from uh, in the Chechenia war, uh, many, many examples you can find. Where, uh, and there's three characteristics. Uh, first, women will always say, uh, talk about the lives of their children. Um, how is this going to affect my children? So they have their children uh, as the first priority. Then the other, uh, the other characteristic is that non-violence. Uh, and non-violence is much more difficult than violence. Violence is rather easy. You shoot and somebody dies. But non-violence, you have to have new creative strategies all the time. You cannot just sit down. Uh, have, have peace marches all the time. They have new creative strategies. One of the best ones, I think, is the, the girl cot action uh, against uh, the girl cutting of New Zealand. You, some of you might know that the girl, yeah, the girl cutting. I also think is great because they created a new word. Um, it's the opposite of boycott. You know, uh, boycotting, the uh, United States was boycotting New Zealand at a point because New Zealand said that they would not uh, allow any, uh, any ships into their harbors that carried nuclear weapons. And the U.S. didn't like this. So then a group of women, Canadian and U.S. women, got together, decided to girlcott New Zealand, which means buying goods from New Zealand. So they would go outside of lots of supermarkets and so on, uh, and with lists that these and these and these things are from New Zealand, buy those. Uh, so they were, uh, of course, it's not only kiwi that's from New Zealand. Kiwi, of course, comes from New Zealand um, very, very often, but there are many other products. And, uh, and in, in the, because women have consumer power, uh, looking for the power in the allegedly powerless is, is, is a, a good thing to do. And they had seen that women very often are the ones buying the groceries. So here they could use that consumer power by saying, we are buying from New Zealand. And it became so that in very many shops they had to uh, get to get through this boycott and getting, getting goods because they were uh, in demand. Uh, so uh, women are, that's one nonviolent tactic. There are many others, and you know about the Irish women 
for peace who were uh, from the Protestants going to the Catholic part and uh, uh, just knocking on the door and then wanting to have tea there and then going back and then the Catholics were coming back to the Protestants to drink tea so that they were starting to talk to each other. Um, uh, and this is the third characteristic is to try to reach women or people in this so-called opposite camp. Uh, so the Irish, uh, the, the Catholic women reaching the ca Protestant women and, and vice versa. Uh, this is something that uh, uh, does not always occur in the male-dominated peace, uh, peace movement. I have a good example from Norway where you have no to nuclear arms. Uh, I was even in, on the council there myself. Uh, and women do most of the grassroots work, but there is men uh, working on the, uh, being the leaders of, of the organization. And uh, the women for peace, uh, they wanted to march. Uh, they w had one peace march to, mo to, uh, to Paris, and then they were criticized, saying that, well, marching to Paris is easy. I mean, it's all part of the West to go from Norway to Paris. Uh, uh, what type of peace march is that? We're all we're part of NATO and, and so on. Uh, you don't dare to go to, uh, to the Soviet Union, they said. That's where, if you should make a peace march, that's, that's where you should do. And the women said, okay, we'll do that. And they took contact with the women in the Soviet Union, and they actually... Uh, organized a big peace march from Norway to the Soviet Union. And then they wanted support from, from uh, NATO nuclear arms. And that organization said, no, we are not, uh, we, as, uh, you can do it as uh, individual people, but as an organization, we think it's not good to uh, support this uh, women's march. They were afraid of getting too closely involved in a politics here. Um, and... Um, I thought that that was a sort of a cowardly way of, of looking at it, but it's very typical for women uh, to wanting to want to reach, especially women in the so-called opposite camp, saying that we are not enemies. There is we're all we're all people. Uh, so uh, examples of women working and writing for peace. I have given some examples, and what characterizes their work is very much trying to look at the people behind, uh, or uh, criticizing the words being used. Uh, I have a fantastic woman, uh, I think it's Carol Cohn. I don't know how many know her, but she's American. And she has written uh, many books, but she has written one article that I use all the time when I teach at the European University of Peace called In the House of the Defense Intellectuals. Uh, she's a political scientist, and she went into a... Uh, Institute for Strategic Arms, Strategic Planning, to find out why, how is it possible for men, because there were only men working there, to sit and plan to annihilate the whole world. Uh, because they were constructing wars on terror on all sort of gruesome things and, and using nuclear weapons as part of this. They're playing on computers, but it's, uh, it's actual, actual planning. And um, uh, then she was there for a year, and then she saw that these men were nice men, family men. Uh, she went to lunch with them. They were very nice to her. And she got to learn the language they were speaking. It's a certain type of language. And then she noticed that she herself was s s starting to, to uh, change her own thinking. 
And she said that before I got out of that institute, I had to ask myself not only how can they sit there planning, but how can we? Uh, she was noticing that her own thinking was changing. And, and I can understand that because I have been uh, sitting on, on the board of a disarmament uh, in the Norwegian Social Democratic Party with military men. I was the only one, uh, only woman and the only non-military. And uh, I found that um, I had to learn to speak their language also, to have some respect uh, I, and uh, to know a lot about missiles and all sort of things. And uh, somehow you get in the know. You become, you're not that f afraid anymore. And uh, it becomes sort of thrilling to be the only woman sitting there discussing military matters in a way. Uh, and it's a very dangerous thing. Uh, luckily, I, I was also talking to women for peace groups so they could get a check, give a check on, on me. Uh, I wasn't part, but I understand totally what she says. This can happen to anyone that you become part of it. Uh, so uh, one has to be uh, very, very careful, and uh, this will happen, of course, to women going into the military. Uh, they will be, uh, uh, will be part of this institution. Uh, she also criticizes the, the words like um, uh, collateral damage. You know, they use the word collateral damage when actually they mean killing civilians. And you have, uh, you have other words where, well, they, there's the same people are, are called terrorists by some groups and they're called freedom fighters by others. I mean, um, uh, Nelson Mandela was also called a terrorist, and uh, ANC was banned, and he was on Robben Islands for 27 years. And then he, later on, he became a president, and, and uh, he and the party is the ruling party in South Africa now. Uh, so these things change, and, and I have also studied in, in um, Eastern Germany, GDR, at the time of GDR, when it was part of GDR, and there uh, they called... Um, the, what we were called the invasion uh, of Czechoslovakia, they called brüderliche Hilfe, brotherly help, the same phenomenon. Uh, so we have to be quite careful when we analyze things. We have to know much more. And um, it's very, very dangerous to call people terrorists uh, without knowing what they are fighting for and why they are fighting. And, and so... Uh, uh, but but uh, in many of these works of women, you can see, um, and then my, the last thing I've written is in this book, The Bridges, um, uh, the, the reality of war and the possibility of peace. Uh, you can find that women are uh, trying to show the, the, uh, how horrendous war is by uh, li really looking at the people involved at the people, uh, the people involved. And, um, yes, I think I, I'll stop here. I have talked, um, I think, yeah, an hour. I, I, actually, I should have talked three quarters of an hour, but it's difficult not get, to get carried away. So I'll stop here. I don't know, have you thought that people should be able to come with questions? Yeah, fine, fine. Okay, yes, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, my name is Al, but I'm from Uganda. Uh -huh. My question is, is towards the structural violence promoted by UN. And yet UN seems to be the best mouthpiece towards creating a global, a world of, a world of peace. Uh, when I look 
through the UN structures, you hardly find women representing UN at country levels. And uh, recently we had a problem in Congo whereby the UN peacekeepers were raping women. Huh. The UN peacekeeping, uh, peacekeeping mission was involved in that kind of uh, issue. So I'm, I'm sort of disturbed. I want to know women like you who are well placed to, I mean, to advocate for peace mm. for women. How do you handle such issues, especially like the one where the UN peacekeeping mission was involved in raping women in public? No, that's, that's just, just uh, very, very terrible. But it, it's happening everywhere where, where there is war. Uh, women are, are raped, and raped from both sides. But, of course, for the UN peace mission, that was the last thing they should do. And I, I haven't heard about the, the, this example. But, uh, but uh, I, I just hope that they are persecuted, that they are tried, uh, because uh, I mean, it's an extremely bad example uh, of, women, of, of UN peacekeeping mission to do a thing like that. But uh, in, in wars, uh, soldiers uh, from both sides are raping, raping women. It's like uh, they are showing that women belonging to the one side, um, they, they are raping them as, uh, as a, um, a revenge towards the other side. So they're treating women as just commodities. And um, uh, I don't know what has happened. Do you know, do you know what has happened to these, uh, uh, these soldiers? Because, of course, in, when they are UN peace mission, <laughs> they, they should be. There was a report in place, but no report has ever come out. No report has come out? No. Yeah, but it's good that something is, is done. Uh, but uh, I, I recently read that in the U.S., uh, in the military in the U.S., women are raped seven times as often as they are outside of the military. So it's, it's, it's happening in the military by the men that they are together with uh, in, in, the, in the military institution. The military institution itself, I think, uh, is, uh, well, is encouraging this very masculine uh, way of behaving, where you're also denigrating. You're denigrating people generally, and then you're really denigrating women especially. And they're, they're using a lot of, of sexist language to, to train women, to train soldiers, where they're using a lot of, of sexist language, um, where, whereby women's organs are being described all the time and so on. And you really, uh, and that there's a book by 
um, I think it's a diary. I'll, I'll find the reference for that. I refer to it, uh, showing what the what the drill instructor does when the, when the men come and to make them into fighters. And uh, because men are not born fighters, and, not, and even the socialization we have, it's really difficult to get men to to fight and to kill. And uh, the way that's done is through a, a sort of brainwashing, and very much a sexist language goes into that. Uh, and and uh, so it's an institution that is, uh, um, is it, it builds up violence and also violence against women. But of course, it's uh, especially bad when it's supposed to be a peace, peace keeping uh, keeping force. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just, I, last week I was in Tanzania. And, uh, uh, and normally I stay at the univers university, but this time I stayed in a hotel. And um, apart from me and my South African partner, everybody else in that uh, hotel was on a um, training to be conflict resolu uh, resolution people in Africa. They were all Africans, apart from you know, two white people, two men, uh, and the one was a Norwegian, and they, it turned out that the Norwegians, was, they were paying for the whole thing. Our Minister of Development now, he uh, wants to be a peace hero, so he, he uses a lot of money for, for peacekeeping forces. And uh, the other man was a Brit. And this Norwegian I talked to quite a bit, he was a policeman by training. Uh, and he had um, worked, he had been in Afghanistan, he had been in ex-Yugoslavia, and been in, in the violent conflicts there. Uh, and what he was, uh, and he was tra trying to train these people, and nowhere, you know, with our profile of, of uh, high profile of women, we had insisted when we give this money that there should be at least 40% women. So there were actually was 40% women, lots of women from uh, both Uganda, there were several, and from Congo. Uh, and uh, all of these got now training for three weeks to be peacekeepers and to go into uh, violent conflicts. So it was a type of training that was n not a training in nonviolence, uh, 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 but, but it was um, tra training to be rather tough and, and be able to go into these, uh, these conflicts. That's the first time I've heard about that type of training. Um, because I think that um, often they pick out politicians, um, male, males. Um, our Minister of Development, he has been uh, uh, trying to be, be a peace uh, negotiator in Sri Lanka for several years, but um, it wasn't very successful. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's normally they politicians they pick out to do this work. But now we're actually trying to train a group of people yeah. Yes? I just wanted to ask you to clarify. There was a name in the book you said. It said, I missed the second word. Is something become you? Does khaki become you? Khaki, the clo the, the clo uh, that, you know, it's khaki that they use when for, for the outfits for the soldiers. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yes? Yeah, um, well, it, it's not, 
uh, we don't have books of the same way that the Swedes have, that we, don't, we have not uh, created a whole extracurriculum for that. So uh, the peace education that we do is, is very much up to the, the teachers themselves. And we have courses and we have an organization called Teachers for Peace, uh, and they have uh, uh, meetings. I sometimes uh, am invited there to talk. Uh, and these teachers who are teachers, uh, who are members of that organization, Teachers for Peace, um, they have done quite good work uh, with their own classes. Uh, so because when you have, you, you have a possibility of using your own class and, and, and do, doing work. Um, and one point we had, um, they had a seminar for a whole week where I was also a speaker and where they made uh, some curriculum that they tried to have out in many schools. And that was, was an interesting uh, work that they did where they um, had the children go into the neighborhood and find out how the costs for kindergartens and the cost for a uh, house for the elderly and, the, and, and, and to um, compare that to the cost of the F-16 jet plane, for instance. Um, uh, things like that they did. And um, um, that went well in some um, low socioeconomic uh, schools. Uh, the children thought this was interesting. There was no protest by parents. But uh, in the high socioeconomic uh, area, uh, there was a protest uh, from a, a couple of parents, of men. One of them was, uh, had the military uh, training himself and was a member of parliament from the Conservative Party. So he took this up in Parliament, and it became a big, big uh, issue that came through all the newspapers, and they were saying that this was subversive activity that this poor teacher was doing, and, and uh, that um, uh, that teacher should be banned from the school and all sort of things, and it was tearing down our will to defend ourselves and so on. And... Um, uh, and it went on a newspaper debate, a long time, many weeks. With the news. Uh, one uh, at the end, there was a very, very interesting um, uh, piece written by the students in that class. And the students themselves, they wrote that we are living in an environment where we get so much uh, from the other side of propaganda all the time that for us it was very good to hear something uh, or, or to learn what we learned now. And then, the, uh, so we are wholeheartedly behind our teacher. We think this was an excellent, excellent teaching. And then the P.S. Uh, no adult has read this before we sent it to the newspaper. <laughs> so, uh, so they were, they, that, that of course helped that teacher quite a bit, that the students, uh, and they, these were eighth graders, so they were four, 15 years old, uh, that uh, they, so the students came out. And, uh, but, but it was uncomfortable. That, and I felt it very uncomfortable too because I'd been part of a, this seminar and I had thought that that was a good idea to have uh, to go around and find out what things cost and, and compare it to military spending. Uh, but um, uh, you have to be careful and uh, if I should give some advice because I've been asked later also and uh, to talks uh, with the same Teach for Peace, I've given the advice that one should have... Um, parent-teacher meeting before one starts uh, and um, then show the parents, give them uh, handouts of what it says in our curriculum uh, about peace education because it says quite a bit of, of what we should inform and also uh, there is a, the, uh, there, uh, was a conference in 1980 
uh, in uh, Paris by UNESCO, the World Congress on Disarmament Education, where it says what one should teach children in school on disarmament. And uh, Norway was one of the uh, countries that uh, had a signature under that. So we can just take out those paragraphs and give them to the parents and say this is what we have now signed and how do you think we should best teach this and start a discussion with with them. Then you probably would not get that result that we got in that class where we just started without uh, thinking about that we had very vocal parents uh, following the children. Yes, are there any other questions? Yeah, Chad. Yeah. I had three. I had, uh, uh, there were three things I, I, I said about that, that, that one of them is that uh, they are, uh, uh, they start always by the question of um, how, uh, what is the future for our children? They start by, by looking at the children. Uh, and the second one is that they are nonviolent. They're always nonviolent and there are many, many different nonviolent techniques. Uh, very many peace movements started led by men are also nonviolent. Uh, by the way, Gandhi has said that he learned all his nonviolent techniques by, from the British suffragettes. So when he is looked at as a big nonviolent hero, he himself said, I learned everything from the British suffragettes, the women. Uh, and, um, but the third is that women are trying to reach other women and other people in the so-called, uh, in the, uh, so, uh, the other camp, uh, the, the so-called enemy. That they don't say that with, we are not enemies. We don't want to be, you have children, we have children, we have to reach out, um, on, uh, so, so, um, those are the three characteristics. Uh, Gandhi had a great belief in, in women. He said that uh, there must always be at least 60% women in all peace marches. Uh, if not, they can become violent. And, uh, and he really kept that. In the Salt March, uh, there were 60% women. And 60% of those arrested, 17,000 women of the 30,000. They, 70, 60% were women of those arrested also. Uh, so um, um, he had absolutely great belief uh, in, in women and in the nonviolence, uh, which I think more, uh, more and more convinced about that you don't get any way with violence, that you, you have to go through the way of nonviolence. Yes. I think it has an effect, especially if uh, uh, there are more women. Uh, I mean, having one single woman, I, I don't think, will help that much. There has to be uh, a group. I mean, 60% would be good, as, as Gandhi said. Uh, we, in, uh, when I think Norway was the first country in the world with the 50% women uh, in the government. And we have kept that as 45%, actually. Uh, but we have kept that. Uh, it was the Social Democrats that started it, but we have kept it since that time. We have 45% women and um, in the government. I, it has an effect. It has an effect on um, things that related to women. 
uh, so that um, well, w- women have a year off when you get a child uh, with everything paid for uh, from uh, from your job for instance things like that and um, but um, uh, I think there's, there's a need that there are more women and there is a need that, that the women have a, a women organization behind them who are saying, why did you get into this? Was, uh, now you're behaving like uh, anyone. Um, y- you have to have uh, somebody behind you. And when our prime minister, Gro Harlem Brundtland, was elected as the prime minister, um, she, she was, first of all, we had been fighting, I was a m- member of, of the women's group of the uh, Social Democratic Party, and we were the ones fighting to get uh, this uh, rule that there must be at least 40% women in, in all committees everywhere. Uh, and uh, that was adopted in the uh, general congregation, it was adopted. And then, uh, so when she was sat there making up the first government, uh, she said, well, we have this rule, so we just can try to find out, find these women. We must have at least so many women because we have that rule, 40%. If, she, if we didn't have that rule, it would have been impossible for her because there were mostly men sitting in that table and they didn't want that many women, but that, was, that had been passed. So that is very, very important. And then uh, when she then got this government of women and, and uh, uh, was the prime minister, when we continued the women in the women's movement in the Social Democratic Party telling her that, well, now, what are you doing now? They've got a committee here with, uh, with 80% men, uh, and uh, are you putting, putting women only into ministries where for children welfare? And what about having a woman uh, dealing with a finance, uh, as a finance minister or, or uh, in defense? Or, uh, yeah. uh, and so, so we had to check on her. And I think that is important. You have to have, I mean, uh, Margaret Thatcher, of course, is a very bad example of it, that when she was detrimental to, to Britain and it was not, not a, she's not a good example for women. But first of all, she did not have a, women, a group of women around her that would check on her at all. Uh, so she was just, well, many called her the man in skirts uh, because she, was, she wasn't uh, listening to women uh, at all. So um, then it doesn't help. Um, and she was rather alone also. And uh, they had you know, men around her. And she, uh, while Gruhal and Brundtland was surrounded by women and many feminist women among them. So it, it, it helps. I, yeah. Okay. There any more questions now? Yes. Yeah, but they are not. <laughs> I mean, they are not uh, 
uh, that engaged in, in developing on the curriculum. They are, uh, they are women, but at the same time, who writes, who decides on, on, uh, uh, on the curricula, who, de- who writes the textbooks, uh, who decides which textbooks are adopted, and what is in the textbooks. I mean, that's an analysis that I, I did when I had this uh, Swe- the Swedish material. I also saw how much of this material uh, is, is written by men and it does not have the peace issues up. Uh, and I'm sure, sure if you did the same here, um, go, went through the, the textbooks, you would find, uh, you would find that uh, um, uh, conflicts that have been solved nonviolently, they are not part of the, of, of the history. Uh, this is something that you, you can find in history books one, uh, one, one place after the other. And uh, then it doesn't really help that much. I and mean, then you have to have people with that thinking about nonviolence and women very often nonviolent to look at the textbooks. I mean, and the history needs to be re- rewritten. History is actually uh, very much... Uh, uh, an account of men's violent solution of conflicts. If, uh, if a, a, a conflict is solved nonviolently, it doesn't become history. It doesn't go into the history books. It hardly goes into the media. Uh, and that is really tragic. Uh, I have a good example as a Norway and Sweden in 1905. They almost, it's almost a war. There was a big uh, dispute against uh, about the border borderline, and there were armies lined uh, lined up at both sides. And we know that there are two ingredients for for a war, and one is a big dispute, uh, and the other one is the armies being present. They were present, and this uh, so the people were just waiting for a war coming in 1905. But then there were people going back and forth over the border there, and. Um, uh, trying to negotiate and avoid it. And it was actually avoided. So there was no war. But there's hardly anything about this in history books. Uh, if it had been a war, it would have been 30 pages, means, at, at, at least. So uh, then our children had to learn about the Norwegian-Swedish war in 905. <laughs> now there, when there was no war, there's nothing, there's nothing there. Uh, and, and you have many, many examples of that kind. Uh, most conflicts are actually are actually solved nonviolently. It's every day we, on the micro level, also we are normally in conflicts with people all the time, with our spouses, with our children, with our colleagues, and so on. And most of these conflicts are solved nonviolently, but they don't make any headlines. Um, uh, but if you then you well you shoot a colleague or, or you do, uh, do some slap a colleague, even that might be, uh, get, get into the newspapers. Uh, at once when you start with violence, it will get into the newspapers. But uh, the a couple having lived happily together for 30 years uh, and solved the conflicts daily, non-violently, also does not, they do not get into, into newspapers. So we have to think a bit about that. And, news, and newspapers are, that's what history books are made out out of very much. They go very often use those as sources. And uh, the whole way that our media treats nonviolence by silencing it. And they're silencing women and they're silencing uh, nonviolence. And if you have women working for nonviolence, they are really silenced, like Bertha von Suttner. Uh, yeah.
Well, because I say thank you. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>